Thank you. You can be seated. Uh, if you're new to Sunridge, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to say, you know, welcome. Thanks. Uh, I've met so many new people out on the patio lately, and um, I know all you introverts are escaping that way. I'm on to your whole plan. But I just have, I just love meeting the, the new faces here. And I have to tell you, it's like, I really do mean it, that I'm really enjoying this, this season of my life to be part of Sunridge and be in this position. And um, it's just great to be together with you guys on Sunday. So, so, so thanks a lot for coming. Um, I want, we're going to jump into Philippians today, but before we do, uh, you know, if you Googled uh, the secret of happiness, you'd get a really wide range of responses. On one hand, you'd get uh, the, the secret to happiness is one thing, believe in yourself. And then I found another site that said the secret to happiness are these 26 basic steps you take. So thank you for getting that. It's like, when I read that, it's like somebody actually put this out on the internet. 26, I, I can't wrap my head around 26 basic steps of anything. Um, but the truth is, Americans, we only rank 18th in the world in the happiness category. That according to the United Nations Annual World Happiness Report. Yeah, that's a thing. You didn't know that, but it is a thing. In fact, if I were to... Um, uh, poll you today, individually, uh, only a third of you would say that you're happy today, statistically. And that's kind of a bummer when you think about, like, in our Declaration of Independence, it says, you know, the reason why we're doing this is we have to pursue happiness, and yet it can seem so elusive. So in spite of the fact that we are in a period in which uh, we're richer than we've ever been. We have more opportunities. We're more educated. We're healthier. We have less pollution. You know, uh, all these good things going on. Um, we are at a 10-year low in happiness in America. I wonder if I asked you today where, where you fall on the happiness scale. You know, one being kind of pretty low and 10 being at your peak. I wonder where you'd land. That's, that's kind of important because this book or letter that we're going to look at today, Philippians, it talks about how to enjoy life. In fact, Philippians, this is in your notes, reveals how to enjoy life. And in it, uh, rejoicing, joy, and gladness are mentioned 19 times. Overall, there's the, this whole general vibe of what it means to be happy and joyful and how to enjoy life. But specifically, these words are mentioned 19 times in just four chapters. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul, who was an itinerant preacher. We're going to kind of look at the founding of Philippians, the Philippian church, in a second. But Paul is in prison when he writes that. When he writes this letter about how to enjoy life, he's, he's imprisoned and possibly facing execution, which that, to me, makes his words so much more poignant because Paul is writing about how to enjoy life in the middle of facing some of the greatest struggles and hardships that a person could ever face. The book starts off in verses 1 and 2 with a typical introduction from Paul. And so what I want to do today is kind of start at a it, kind of like a Google Earth perspective of the book. We're going to start way, way up high here, like 
just kind of like who, who the believers were at Philippi, a little bit about the founding church. And then I just want to zoom in on some of the specifics in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, which is where we're going to be studying today. So we're going to put the verses up on the screen. Just kind of follow along with me. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very typical of one of Paul's letters, the way he would introduce it to who, who it's to, who it's from, and he usually associates grace and peace with his words. So that, this is how Paul introduces his letter. But let me introduce you to the Philippian church. And some of this is in your notes with fill in the blanks. First of all, the Philippian church was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. You can read the story of how the church at Philippi started in Acts chapter 16. That's the, you know, in your New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. Acts are like kind of, it's the history of the early church. And in 16, you find how that all goes down in Philippi. Um, I want to put a map up of Paul's second missionary journey. If you don't know a lot about the Apostle Paul, he was... uh, you know, miraculously really converted to Christ. And you can find that story in Acts. And then he got, he got just really fired up about it. And so he decided to take the gospel around the, the known world. And in, in Acts, we have at least three journeys recorded that he took. This is the second one. And if you look over in the kind of mid-right side, you see Antioch. <clears throat> That's where he starts from. And then he goes all the way through Asia and up into uh, Macedonia, which is Greece now, and then, you know, down and around. So he has at least 20 stops along the way. And one of those stops, if you look uh, from Troas, and then he crosses the Aegean Sea into Neapolis and then to Philippi, that's kind of the pathway of his journey in sharing Christ in these different communities. And these letters that we're reading are letters that he's written back to the believers that in the churches that he founded. Also, uh, Silas is here recorded to be with him, but also likely Luke and Timothy were his companions. So they're along with him. Um, you may have heard this phrase, Ignatian Way, before. That, um, and this would be the next point. The Ignatian, the Ignatian Way passed through the center of Philippi. The Ignatian Way was built by the Roman Empire in the uh, 2nd century B.C., and it was, a, it was a highway of that time. And it was for commerce. And, um, and then also it was a way to connect all these colonies that the Romans had conquered. And so they built this highway that not only would move uh, commerce and goods through, but it was also a way that they could easily flow from one of their conquered regions to the next. So Philippi, even though it's not a big city, it's a very strategic city because of its location. And uh, it was important to the Romans, and it was important to the commerce in that region. Uh, Philippi was colonized by the Romans. It was colonized by the Romans. So the history of that region is that as the Romans expanded their empire, they went in and conquered these areas. And when they did, they would repopulate it with retired soldiers or other Romans. And so historically here, there's like this strong tie to Rome. And it was their way of making sure the Roman values were 
infused into that community, but also a way of maintaining control. So the reason why I bring that up is you're going to see how the fact that this, this community called Philippi, the city has a Roman uh, history, uh, it's very, and it's very Roman in its uh, philosophy and its government. That's going to that's gonna affect some of the things that Paul says in the way he uh, responds uh, to the people there. And then the last uh, kind of a nice to know uh, is that Paul did not originally plan to go there. If you look at, uh, at that, we won't put the map back up, but really he was kind of intended to like veer off to the right toward Bithynia. And he just had like this thing in his spirit that wouldn't let him go there. And at the same time, he had a dream that was, uh, that, that was someone in Macedonia, which is the region that uh, Philippi is in. And in this dream, this person is there saying, come, come over here, we need, we need you. And what I love about that, this is like a freebie for the sermon. Uh, it's not even part of your notes. Um, is that, you know, Paul's like this really ambitious, focused person. That's the way he comes across to me and most scholars. And, and yet you see this flexibility and a sensitivity to, you know, he has a plan, but he's still open to what God is doing. It's always good to have a plan, but sometimes the best things happen in an, when we don't have a plan or when our plan changes. You've, you probably can relate to that. This church that he founded... Um, is totally on his mind while he's in prison. He could even be facing execution at this time, but he, in spite of that, he writes to them about joy. In fact, if you pick up virtually any commentary on Philippians, it probably has the word joy in it somewhere because this is the joy letter. And again, it's so remarkable because of the situation that Paul is in. As you, as you kind of like take this 10,000-foot level uh, perspective of Philippians, this is what you'll see in regards to happiness. The secret to enjoying life is found in the gospel. The secret to enjoying life is found in the gospel. And I know, of course, isn't a preacher going to say that, right? But we're going to look at how central uh, the gospel is to joy. And I just uh, we're going to read through verses 3 and 11. And I've highlighted some words here, but like, Feel the, feel the vibe, you know, feel what's coming off of these pages in regard to joy and its relation to the gospel. And then also I've highlighted some different words in different colors. The, the blue is kind of expresses the idea of joy or thankfulness. And then the green highlights how the gospel ties in to that joy. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Can you see the gospel jumping off this section and then even specifically? You know, some of you, uh, 
here today, you may, not, you may not be familiar with that word. The gospel, it means good news. It can be literally translated either way, gospel or good news. Um, and the good news is related to Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We've celebrated it here today. But in the end, what you should know is that there's no person so far from God that's committed so many sins or so many awful sins that God's grace cannot save you. You can never be too far from, from the good news being applicable to you. And the other side of the gospel is, especially for those of you who are trying to earn your way to heaven and you're just trying to be good enough for God, is that that's not what God is saying to you. That as good as you could ever be, you will never be good enough. You still need the gospel. So all of us do, no matter if we're a good person or a bad person. That is the good news, that it's not on us. That it's because of Jesus Christ that we have a relationship with God. But it goes further than that. You know, the gospel isn't just this one-time transaction that we have. It's like, I did that, I'm good, I got my ticket to heaven, and now I'm all set. And now I can just do whatever I want. That's really not the picture of what is intended by the good news. Really, the good news or the gospel fulfills every longing that we have as human beings. You know, we all, it definitely covers eternity, right? We, the Bible says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of uh, men and women. You know, we all kind of have this, this sense that there's something more than just this life. And whether you believe that it's there or not, it's like there's like an angst in us. And when we receive the gospel, that, that confidence is settled that I'm going to spend eternity in a place of beauty and wonder with, with loved ones who have believed in Jesus Christ and with the creator of the universe. It settles that eternity, but it doesn't stop there. The gospel also it makes us whole. The way I would put it is like there's a God space vacuum in every person. And we try to fill that with all kinds of things, but it can only be filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it, it's like this little seed that gets planted in there, and it begins to grow. I think Jesus might have talked about that at one time. And it starts to expand and fill us up. And when, when our hearts are centered and our lives are filled with the gospel, we start to change. There's, there's a sense of we have meaning and value because, not because of society or because of our economic status or because we're more educated or we found some level of success. Our, our satisfaction and contentment comes because God sees value in us. And the gospel starts to fill us up with that. And with that happening, with our souls full. And another way the, the Bible puts it is that our, our spirits are like, it's, there's a spirit inside us and it's dead and it comes alive when the gospel um, dwells in us. And when that aliveness comes, it's like it changes everything about you. It doesn't all change overnight, but as we allow the gospel to grow in our hearts, our perspective of life changes, our relationships changes. And we, we start to look at things through that lens or we're centered by the gospel. And that is where joy is found. Joy is found in the gospel because, in a way, 
we are, as much as we can in this sinful world, world, we're returning to the design that God has for us as we allow that to grow within us. It's not automatic. We have a choice. But if we allow it to happen, and in, in this passage, we see how it affects us in different ways, in specific ways. And Paul gives at least two here. First of all, your relationships change. When the gospel takes over, our relationships that are infused with the gospel become life-giving. Our relationships that are infused with the gospel are life-giving. Now, I didn't say that when you become a Christian, all of a sudden your relationships become perfect. I didn't say that you should just walk around and talk about Jesus all the time. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Some of you could improve on that, definitely. But there's not magic in that. What I'm saying is that your relationships become life-giving when the way you approach them is centered by the gospel. When there's sense of your acceptance with God and that good news begins to grow within you, it changes the way you relate to people. It changes the way that you see people. Let me show you this specifically with Paul and his relationship with the Philippians. Again, I'm going to put the same passage up, but I've highlighted some different sections. Look at how Paul relates to these Philippian believers. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. I have you in my heart. I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. You know, you could read that and go, of course, like that's an apostle. He's going to say these things. But you could not find two people or two groups of people that would be categorically so unlikely to be in a relationship with one another. For instance, with Paul, you know, as a zealous, traditional Hebrew rabbi, he despised Christians. He was part of the persecution of the church. And then you, again, referring back to the fact that this group of people is largely of Roman descent. Remember that the Romans are enemies of the Hebrew people at that time. They are enslaved by them. They're, they're lording their power over them. And a Roman soldier could walk up to any Jew at that time and say, carry my pack for a mile. It's like they have, they're totally oppressed by the Roman Empire. And yet Paul says to these people, these Christians, these Roman Christians, you're on my mind all the time. You're in my heart. And you're in my prayers. You know, some scholars say that the Philippians were Paul's favorite. That might be true. Look at it from the other perspective with the Philippians who, again, are Roman descent. They're, they're above others. And now they're following the teachings of this Jewish rabbi that they are over economically, socially, culturally. And now they're in this thing called a church. And they have this partnership in the gospel. 
So now you have the apostle, this crusty apostle, Paul, who is saying to these believers that would be categorically not part of his circle, I miss you so much, I long to see you, and I love you with the deep love of Jesus Christ. And you have a Philippians following his teachings and taking care of him. Both are dramatically changed. We see it in a couple of ways here, just in this text. But it's very genuine and practical, their relationship. When Paul talks about, um, I thank God for the partnership we have in the gospel and that you've shared God's grace with me, he's not just talking about spiritual realities. He's talking about very practical things and that he's saying we, have, we, we are so close and so intertwined that we are sharing resources. You know, the Philippian church is sharing their resources with the church. They're actually sharing their resources with the apostle Paul who's in prison because a prisoner um, has no source of income, they're not working, and they have just minimal care in Roman prisons. And so Paul relies on his relationships of people that actually care for his basic needs. And then later Paul even talks about the Philippians, how they are caring so much out of their, out of their poverty for the church and suffering Christians in Jerusalem. And not only are they like sharing this partnership goes all the way to their resources with one another. But they're also openly affirming one another, which is really unusual. In fact, these words are miraculously recorded for us and preserved for all time, that Paul is sharing his deep affection for this church and the people there. And he even names them. He, he talks to the Philippians. Later, you'll see he, he talks about Epaphroditus and Timothy and, you know, I think that that's an important thing to realize, not just the affirmation that happens in a, in a relationship that's been affected by the gospel, but like that it's specific. You know, I just want to say publicly that how much I affirm our staff here. We have an amazing staff at this church, and you don't see behind the scenes what they do for one another, but... This is, I, I've worked in plenty of churches. I just want to tell you, like, we have an amazing staff. None of us are stars. You know, likely we're not going to write books. Maybe some of us will. It won't be me. It'll be written in crayon. <laughs> but they're just remarkable. And then, you know, this church is led by a group of volunteers called elders. They're not paid. And you have no idea the amount of time and effort they put into leading this church, that we put into it, leading it together and making decisions and settling questions. And I just want to affirm them by name. I, most of them were in the first service, but if they're here and I call your name, would you stand up? Bill Moretti, Eric Anderson, Todd Hunt, Brian Purvis, Rich Lerma, and Mark Horton. See? One of the wonderful things that I've gotten to do is to work alongside these guys. And we don't do it enough, but th this is like the circle that I work with mainly at Sunridge, and I'm just so grateful. And so I affirm the guys on our board, and I, and I affirm our staff. Because if you don't say these things, what good do they do, right? 
Have you ever like thought of saying something, affirming somebody, and then you, and then that's all it is? That doesn't help anybody. But if if the gospel is life giving to us, then those words of affirmation are going to come out just as they did here. You know, uh, we talk about rooted here, which is a ten week discipleship small group experience, and. You know, if you're at Sunridge and you haven't been to it, whether you're new, you've been here for 20 years, I want to say something to you. You need to go to Rooted. It is going to be a powerful discipleship experience for you, whether you're just beginning or whether you've been here and you think that you're too smart for it and you already know all that. You don't. Because part of what happens in Rooted is like other things besides just learning. And one of the things that happens is you travel for 10 weeks with this group of people. And, that, and near the end of the rooted study, one of the things you do is you share words of affirmation with one another. Now, I know that that's a program thing, but you would be surprised how powerful it is. And so we go around the room, around the group, and people say that, you know, we've, we've gotten to know each other over 10 weeks, and we say things to affirm, I see this in you. And it's really powerful. But such a simple thing. I wonder when the last time it is that somebody affirmed you. I bet it made a real difference. I wonder when the last time it is that you affirmed someone else. Or do people in your circle generally just hear when you have a criticism? When the gospel comes alive in us, it's life-giving. And one of the things it does is it bonds us together in this partnership And it also enables us to speak these words to one another. It's why, you know, relationships are important. But, you know, your relationships in your church are very important. I hope that you're, if you call Sunridge home, that I hope you're accessing the opportunities that you have to be in a circle with somebody. A small group, a study, rooted a class, a Bible study, some curriculum. It's like there's so many ways to do it. In fact, you know, shameless plug for Thursdays at Sunridge. We have totally set it up. We're going to have eight different kinds of studies here on this campus with childcare. It's like, don't, don't stay on the outside because if you're a Christian, you know that the gospel's moving you toward partnership with people, and it's also moving you toward relationships with people. Make sure that you don't miss out on that part. If you want to enjoy life to the fullest, then allow the gospel to infuse your relationships with that life-giving stuff. And partner with your church. Make, make this your family. The second way, uh, the second thing that comes out of this text to me about how the gospel brings joy is this, that the gospel continues to shape us, giving us meaning and purpose. The gospel continues to shape us, giving us meaning and purpose. And that's just to say that, you know, God's work isn't done the day you become a Christian. He continues to work on you. But you have to be a willing participant. Let me show you in this passage some of the ways that Paul highlights the way the gospel works on us. And again, I've highlighted these phrases 
in verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 9, that your love may, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, becoming a Christian isn't a one-time transaction. There's a work that God does in us. And that ongoing work that God does within us that brings joy to the believer. And resisting it brings the opposite. Paul calls this a good work that is to be carried on to completion. And is anybody complete here? Anybody done with God's program? Me either. And specifically, he says what this looks like. It's like, if the gospel's working in us, like we, we, our love abounds. We have insight, discernment, purity, the fruit of righteousness. God gets glory. This is all part of the ongoing growth of a Christian. If you're looking for meaning and purpose and, and how that is going to bring you joy in life, the way to achieve that is to allow God to continue to work on you on the inside. And when he does that, meaning and purpose comes out of your life. And when that happens, you feel happy. You feel joy because you're, you're centered and you're living life the way God intended you to live it. But if God isn't working in you, and you kind of feel like you're in a funk, or, you know, it's just like you, you're not happy because you don't feel like you're where, where you want it to be. Can I just, maybe you should go get an education, maybe you should get counseling, and all these things are helpful. Read a book. But can I just suggest to you, if you're a Christian, that you go back to the basics and say, okay, God, do, do a work in me. Form Christ's character in me. When we get in a funk, when we get off track, when we feel purposeless, so many different things that we're tempted to engage in to kind of solve that. I mean, you can, you can use drug and, drugs and alcohol. You can pursue uh, different relationships or illicit relationships. Um, we try to fill that gap with, you know, the next new thing, the next new toy, the next new experience, spiritual experience. And, you know, none of those things will satisfy long-term. The thing that brings joy long-term is allow God to continue to work in you. And when he does that, what comes out is what God wants to do through you. When I was thinking about this, I thought kind of like over my life, and kind of like in an audience like this, we're all like on a different place on the timeline of life, right? And I thought about this young couple that comes to our church. He usually sits down here first service, Aaron and Gabby. We just baptized them a couple weeks ago. And Aaron's a Marine. He came out here as a young single guy um, from Texas. And 
he's stationed at Pendleton, and somehow he found Sunridge. I think it was the awesome teaching he saw online. But he started coming to Sunridge, and you know, that guy drives to Temecula from Pendleton multiple times a week. And he serves in our high school department, he serves in our children's department. And then he marries this young gal, Gabby, Gabrielle, and, and she moves out here with him from Texas. And they're doing it together. And I thought, what a beautiful way to start. That this young man and this, this young couple, I mean, he's investing so much. And you can just see it. He sits down here in the front row. He's usually got a hand out like this when he's singing. He's a, he's a killer and a worshiper. Think about that. <laughs> That's, that means something extra to me. And then I think of like the other end of the spectrum. Not all of you know this couple named Chuck and Harriet Colburn, but they're in their 80s. Yeah, if you know them, like I just want to grow up and be like Chuck. The reason why they're not here is they're up at Hume Lake Christian Camp serving for the umpteenth summer, and they put in 16-hour days, day in, day out, all summer serving at that camp. And they've served in all these different ways. And, and, and when they're here, they're like on whiskey throttle the whole time here, too. It's like, just doing stuff. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, even before our A-team formed, you would see Chuck and Harriet out there trimming trees and pulling weeds and hauling branches over to the dumpster. And they just do it with like a, they're just so filled with joy. It's so remarkable. And I think there's the beginning, and then there's like more senior time. And you just have people that are like, there's something different about them. And I believe the difference is revealed here in Paul's letter to the Philippians that it's how the gospel's working within them. Nobody's bugging them to do this stuff. We're not using slick volunteer recruitment methods on people like that. They're just like, they just have a heart. They're just filled with something and it comes out. Um, you know, when I started this message, I said that I wanted to do a Google Earth perspective of the text and then kind of like drill down into some specifics. Specifically, we talked about the partnership in the gospel and how the gospel affects our joy. And then we talked about how our relationships are part of that. And then we talked about um, how, how if the gospel's filling us up, we're on this continual growth track where God is constantly working in us informing us into Christ's character. That's what comes out of the text. But I wonder, as a wrap-up, if we didn't, like, do a Google Earth perspective of you, what we'd find. You know, like, if we look at Sunridge from 10,000 feet up, is Sunridge a joyful church because of what the gospel's doing in us? And as we zero in a little more, like, on your family, or even on you, if we just put the cursor on you right now and zoomed in on you, are, are you filled with joy because of what God is doing in you? And then when you wake up on Wednesday, are you going to wake up thinking about all the things that have happened to you or all the, all, all the struggles that you have or all the things that you don't have and your friends have? He's going to wake up unhappy 
Or are you going to wake up alive? Because every day you're reminded that God loves you so much that he sent his son. And that it wasn't a one-time transaction, that that continues to grow in you. And the outcome is that you experience life the way it was meant to be lived. And you're filled with joy. Even in times that are more of a struggle and rugged for you. You know, some of you came to church today and you just came to church out of desperation. You're not a churchgoer. Can I just tell you the simple truth that your relationship with God isn't based on how good you're going to be today and that you, got, you came to church. Maybe you get a, like, a bonus point in heaven for having come to church today. I don't know. But God isn't looking for you to become a better person. He's looking for you to join his family. And the Bible says if you believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ and you confess with your mouth that you're saved and you can do that right in your seat. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you've never become a Christian, I just want you to like take the joy challenge. Okay? God, I don't could pray something like, God, I don't know what all this means, but I, I sense you pulling me towards you. And I know that I need you. So would you forgive me of my sin and let me start a relationship with you today. Pray that while I'm praying for the church. And then allow that to grow in you. Let's pray.